0: And I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open up to 2 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because we would uh, give one to you and you can follow along. I'd love for you to follow along. It's on page 705, 2 Peter, Uh, page 705. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Now, while you're looking that up, a few thoughts on our topic for this morning. I've been surprised recently as I have thought about uh, my friends who are not Christians and many of whom are really near and dear to my heart and and we have a genuine friendship. And there are many times, a surprising number of times where somebody has said to me uh, some version of this, uh, I wish I had the faith that you have. I wish I had your faith. If you've ever experienced that from somebody before. And, And it's a sweet sort of transparency, but it's also a window into the soul a little bit as well. And uh, Andrew uh, Franklin uh, passed a lecture on to me by Jamie Smith, who's sort of an expert in these kinds of things. And he says that there really is uh, sort of a haunting of the human race about thoughts of God. We, we're haunted by thoughts of God. We, we can't get rid of our thoughts and our hopes and our desires and continual musings about God. And he cites uh, Julian Barnes, who's a British Uh, novelist who says this, which captures the idea. He says, he's an atheist. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Isn't that interesting? And maybe you know people like that. Maybe you've been that. Maybe you are that person today. Uh, We're haunted by thoughts of God. Now, Peter is writing to a people who are kind of in the, the northern, just underneath the Black Sea area there. Um, Christians, probably a mixture of Christians and, and non-Christians, but whatever it is, it's an area that's been influenced by a particular philosophy called Epicureanism. And let me define briefly what Epicureanism is, and if you are a, a, a professor of philosophy, this will be irritating to you because it's you know, such a short definition. But um, essentially what, what Peter's writing uh, about this form of philosophy that's taken hold in the area and sort of creeping into the church as well. This idea that God is not here, he's not coming back, and so do whatever you want. There's a really simple definition of Epicureanism. Uh, God is not here, he's not coming back, so do what you want. Now, recently my wife went on a trip uh, for four days, and uh, the two older kids and I were at home, just the three of us, and, uh, you know, the first day was fine, but I came home the second day, and man, it was like a bomb had gone off in the house, right? Just stuff everywhere, I mean, just crazy, and, and there was a sense that, well, mom's not going to be back, right, for two more days, so we can just do whatever we want, Right? Uh, that's kind of uh, Epicureanism in a box right there. Um, This idea, God's not here, he's not coming back, so do whatever you want. Now, it's a little different, though, I have to say, uh, about Epicureanism, because it's not just sort of do whatever you want and sort of follow your own physical passions and desires, dissipation kind of idea. It's more uh, do whatever you want to sort of master the world. There's a different sense. The Epicurean sought pleasure not from from, you know, sort of living the the wild lifestyle, but from more self-control, mastery of the world, understanding the world, um, uh, delaying gratification, you know, being uh, intelligent, being on top of things, Um, actually very Bay Area, uh, in a sense, all right? There's a a seeking of pleasure um, that comes from our sort of mastering our environment and being in control and on top of things, one great example of this is the documentary, Somme, which some of you may have seen. Again, Andrew Franklin uh, passed this on to me. I said before he should just come up here and preach because these are all his ideas. Um, this documentary, Somme, is about uh, these four or five people who are trying to become master sommeliers. And they uh, are taking this incredible arduous class and course, and it's like becoming a doctor, and they're studying all night long. And, and, and ultimately, what they're trying to do is is to be able to identify and talk about and and pair wines for any kind of meal uh, that you could ever have. And there's only just a few of these, like 100-and-something master sommeliers in the whole world. And so they're trying to become this. And so they study like crazy. And at the very end, they, they put out five glasses of wine, and they have to determine... What is it old world or new world, just by smelling and tasting it? you know is it what country does it come from? What region does it come from in that particular country, and then what winery might it be from? So they get there and they 're able to do this in some cases to get all the way down to the winery that it 's from just by tasting it so that that 's more like the epicurean style is to seek pleasure through mastery of the environment and through uh, through um, uh, control and all of that. And so it's very, it's very Bay Area. I don't know if this resonates with you. It certainly resonates with, with me. Um, not surprisingly, this culture was influencing the church to which Peter was writing. And just like it influences ours, apparently you could be an Epicurean Christian, which is you do life, you know, forgetting that God is, is alive and here. Um, not remembering that God is present. You forget that God is coming back and that changes the way you think about your life. And so you end up seeking pleasures in this life through mastery because your mind is on this life and not on the next life. And so this kinds of philosophy can creep into the church and affect our worldview even even as Christians. And, And the true Christian worldview is opposite to that, right? It says, God is here, he's alive. And he's coming back. And so rather than just doing whatever you want, lay down your life. Take up your cross. It's a very contrary worldview because there's a heaven coming and in that place you will be blessed, you will be taken care of, everything will be fine for all eternity so you can make sacrifices now in this short life that you live. So that's the opposite message, and so Peter is concerned of this creeping in, and he's writing to this culture that ultimately is hungering, it's got an unfulfilled hunger for the divine, for the things of God, and so Peter is writing to help them understand how it is that we approach that longing, that desire, that, that feeling of, I don't believe, but I miss him, I, I want God in my life, how do we do that? So look with me in verse 3. Peter writes, "His divine power has granted uh, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption." That is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, there is a lot in those two verses, many uh, powerful phrases and concepts that are piled on top of each other, but this really gets to the core of what 2 Peter is about. And so I'd like to try and unpack that with you this morning in, in the time that we have. And the first thing I want to say about this, there's kind of an underlying assumption in this text that. Um, what Peter is assuming for all of us is that we all want God's glory and excellence. And if you go back to the way I started this morning and reflecting on people that I've known who said, I wish I had your faith. There's a sense that for all of us, we want God's, as, as Peter defines it, glory and excellence. We want to come into contact with that. And it's a fair assumption that human beings long for and desire. Now, it's tempting to think, that God is excellent because he meets some sort of standard that exists out in the universe. But we need to get this right. Actually, God defines what excellent is. He doesn't have to meet any standards. He is the standard. He is what, it, what excellence means at its very core. And he gives meaning to the concept of excellence. And so if we're looking for what is excellent, we don't say, well, this is what excellence is. Let's see if God matches up. We go to God to say, what is excellent in the first place? That's a huge shift for us. Many of us walk around wondering, will God meet up to my definition of what excellent is? And we've got to get that turned around just in the beginning of the conversation. Now, what is being talked of by Peter here is God's moral excellence or his virtue. So it's both what he is, he's best, he's the best, who he is, he's the best, and also what he does. He does it best. So he is what is best, and he does what is best all the time. That's God. It's, it's, it's inherent to who he is. And so when we, want it, when we want glory and excellence, we go to God to let him define what those things are for us. And our longing is to enter into that glory and excellence, just like the, the sommelier wants to have that moment where the wine and the food comes together and everything is right and has its purpose and it's excellent. There's a hunger for that. We want to enter in to God's excellence, which is much greater and much grander. We want to become partakers of it. We want to bask in it. When I was studying classical guitar, we would have weekly recitals with the students and we would play for one another. And usually we would have a piece partially completed and so we would play it just to get used to playing it for others. And most of the time, right afterwards, somebody would dive in with a critique or a comment or a thought or a response. But once in a while, once in a while, somebody would be preparing a piece for a recital and they would be close to that recital and they'd work really hard on it and they would play this piece and they would leave it out there and the piece would end and nobody would want to say a word because we had just been in the presence of excellence and nobody wanted to break the moment and there would be this pregnancy to the moment, as we would just sit there and absorb and, and, and wait. and nobody want, and I remember thinking so many times, as we sat in silence, the only thing you would hear would be the lights in the room. Or maybe you would hear the heater. because we were basking in a moment where somebody had achieved excellence, and it was beautiful. And it touches something deep inside of us, some great longing that we have. And just put that on steroids to think about the longing that we have for the moral excellence of God, to to step into an environment where there is no sin, where everything is as it should be, where there's perfection, where where everything is right and good and how it was intended to be and true. We have a deep, deep hunger to be in the presence of God's glory and excellence. And not only do we hunger to be in it, We also hunger to partake of it. We would like for that glory and excellence to become characteristic of who we are and how we move through the world and how we live. We want want to reflect God's goodness and his glory and his excellence in, in our lives. We want to take that excellence on as our own character. There's a sweetness to that. I think of Peter who, if you remember, just as Jesus was going to the cross, he said, to Jesus. He said, I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you ask of me to do. And then immediately thereafter, he denied Jesus three times. And so Peter, we know, is this, this sort of impetuous young man who, who uh, is prideful and, and thinks of himself as, as greater than he is. And, and he, he speaks these, these bold words that he can't make good on. That's who Peter was, right? But out of being close to God, hanging around with Jesus, and then spending time absorbing the glory and the excellence of God, Peter was transformed, so that if you just turn the page over to the left, and you look at the end of 1 Peter, now you have a more mature man who's grown in the Lord, and he's talking now about humility. So this prideful young man has been transformed by the glory and excellence of God into this this one who loves humility and cherishes it, and he speaks about humility in a way that only somebody who's truly experienced it could speak. Listen to what he says in verse 5 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares This is a mature man who's been transformed. He's become a partaker in the glory and the excellence of God as it pertains to humility. And I can't help but think about the very end of John when Jesus meets him and he's already fallen. Peter has fallen. He's denied Jesus three times and just made a mess of things. And then Jesus comes and says, Peter, do you love me? And how many times does he ask him? Three times, right? He exalts Peter out of his humility and his brokenness see, Jesus is like that. And Peter has experienced this transformation of his character. And we see it in 1 Peter and his love for humility because of the proximity to the glory and the excellence of God. And that's what we want. We want to be in it. We want to bask in God's glory and excellence. And we want it to become part of our character, who we are. That's a deep longing that every human being carries around from the day that he or she is born. And the good news is this, is that Jesus calls us into that glory and excellence. He calls us into it. We might see it out there and want it and hope it and can't get there, but Jesus calls us into that glory and excellence. That's the good news. And it happens through knowledge of him. In verse three, where it says his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. It's speaking about Jesus because it's referring back to verse two, which ended of of God and of Jesus, our Lord. And and we've already been told in verse one that Jesus Christ is God. Peter's already made the case for the divinity of Jesus Christ there in verse one. And so this divine power is accessible through Jesus Christ and our knowledge of him. Now, there's different types of knowledge, right? There's knowledge about something, and you've experienced that. That's the Wikipedia kind of knowledge. You could look up Jesus Christ on Wikipedia, and you would get knowledge about Jesus. But there's another kind of knowledge, which is maybe what we could call knowledge of Jesus. I'm not sure if that's even entirely adequate, but that's what we'll use. And it's the kind of knowledge that we think of not as information, but as relationships. And the knowledge that gives us access to the glory and excellence of God is not just merely the information kind of knowledge. It's the relational knowledge. Now, why do I say that? Look at verse 16 here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter outlines for us what this knowledge is like a little bit more. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't just pull down the Wikipedia article and hand it to you. But we were eyewitnesses of this majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father. Now engage your creative sort of pictorial mind and imagine Peter standing there witnessing these events with Jesus Christ. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him. On the holy mountain. So in the Transfiguration, when that happened to Jesus and the voice came from heaven, Peter was there. He knew Jesus and he had been relate in relationship with Jesus and he witnessed it all. So the knowledge that is not just about Jesus, this is knowledge, firsthand knowledge of relationship with Jesus. Now you read that and you go, okay, that's fine for Peter, but what about me? Because I don't live when Jesus walked on the earth. And so I can't have that same kind of knowledge. Peter says this, going on in verse 19, he says, um, and we have something more sure. So this is amazing to me. We have something more sure, more sure than the relationship that Peter experienced there, witnessing what God said about Jesus from on high. We have something more sure. What could that be? The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star, that's the Messiah, the prince, rises in your hearts. So what's going on here? Peter's saying, look, I know you don't have that same experience that I had with Jesus Christ, but actually you have something better, which is the prophetic word. And he goes on to explain it as the scripture. Um, And he gives a wonderful little theology of scripture right underneath this, which we'll get to in due time. But the main issue that he's saying right here is you don't have that firsthand relationship, but what you have is something even greater, which is the promises of God brought to you through scripture, which holds you in relationship to Christ until the day when he comes back and you're no longer going to need this anymore because he's going to be with you and, and, and knowledge of him, it says, will rise up in your hearts. And so that's not the kind of knowledge about Jesus. This is intimate relational knowledge that comes from having Jesus Christ in your presence. You, think, of, think of the World War II soldier who was in battle and all he had was a letter from his beloved. And he carries around that letter and treasures it. And maybe it has a picture. And he's read it 150 times. And it's tattered. And it's worn. And there's smudges and coffee marks and stuff on it. But he keeps pulling out and reading it because it it brings him back into remembrance of the relationship that he has with his beloved back home. And he cherishes this, this letter. He doesn't put it in the filing cabinet at the, you know, with the commanding officer. He puts it in his breast pocket and keeps it with him, because it's so precious to him. But when he's restored to his beloved, he no longer needs the letter, right? This thing that has been so precious and has kept him going, he doesn't need the letter anymore. because now she's there, and they embrace. And maybe he keeps the letter as a trinket, a remembrance of a difficult time, but he no longer needs to live by the letter because she's in presence with him. And what Peter's saying is the very same thing is going on with you and me. Jesus was here. Now he's raised from the dead. He's gone, but he's given you a letter. Cherish it. Carry it around with you. Make sure the edges are getting worn. Memorize it. Internalize it. Absorb it. Because it will keep you until that time when He returns and knowledge of Him will just well up in your heart fully and completely because you will be in His presence the presence of glory and excellence. I've been having a great time with my Bible recently, just a little testimony. I kind of threw away the checklist of, you know, Bible in a year, you know, read this and that and checking out. And I just started digging in with my pencil and the Bible and whatever issue I'm grappling with, whatever I'm struggling with, I'm flipping back and forth. The other day, just spent time in Acts and just absorbing, got the maps out. Where was Paul going? What was going on all his life? Just sort of, just sort of like it's a love letter that I'm cherishing and I want the edges to be worn because it's keeping me until my beloved comes back. Right? That's the attitude that we're to have with this wonderful gift that we've been given. And I'm telling you, I have experienced over the last little while just some great renewal and strengthening. And I'm just reminded. I know it's trite. It's been used so many times. But this is God's love letter. That's what it is. It's not just a set of commands and a to do list. It's what keeps us connected until He returns and keeps us in the relationship. It's knowledge of God. So we all want God's glory and excellence, and Jesus calls us into it, this glory and excellence, through knowledge of Him. And we know Him because of this wonderful letter that's been written to us and the last piece of that is that this knowledge of Jesus changes us just knowing God I find sometimes the Bible is very frustrating because I want to tell me what to do next don't you want that sometimes all right yeah yeah humility and faith and love and hope and all that yeah yeah just what do I do today right I feel that sometimes. I want it to be more specific. I want it to be more applicational sometimes. But here's the deal. Apparently, the way that we experience genuine, lasting transformation is not from being told what to do next, but from drawing closer and closer to the glory and the excellence of God. And that as we live in that realm... As we partake of his character, we are transformed. A.W. Tozier says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now sit with that for a little while. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if I want to change who I am, then I need to change the way I come to God, the way I think about God, my knowledge of God, my reflection of who God is, on who God is. That's how transformation occurs. And that's what Peter is saying. It's through the knowledge of God. And I'm so thankful for this because as I try to change myself, I find over and over again, I just can't do it. I can't do it. But God isn't saying to me, Andrew, change yourself and then come to me. He's saying, come to me and get to know me. Come to me and get to know me, who I am in my glory And my excellence, that's what God is saying. And as you do that, you will be transformed. My character will become part of your character. And whatever that is, humility, or faith, or joy, or patience, and that's what you most need. You don't need me to tell you what to do next. You need to become like me. And as you draw close to me, you will become like me. And the beautiful news is that we don't even have to draw close to God entirely. And we, we can't because he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And when he went to that cross to atone for our sin, to cleanse us, and the curtain in the temple was torn so that we could have access to God, so that we could, because of the forgiveness of our sins, enter into the glory and the presence of God where the glory and the excellence of God is. And if we place our faith in Christ, that atoning sacrifice is meant for us. We're cleansed and access to God's glory and excellence is open to us. And so if you've never done that, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do that today, to place your faith in Him as Lord and Savior so that that access is, to the transformative relationship with God, will be open to you. Now what it says is that we escape the corruption of this world then, as we draw close to God in His glory and His excellence, we escape the corruption of this world. And that's a beautiful thing that happens. We've been talking about um, sexual sin recently. We had a couple of brave students share their testimony around that. And so we've been opening it up to the congregation. Anybody who might be struggling with sexual sin we made a special blog on our Opiso website, which is our discipleship website, O-P-I-S-O. And I want to invite you into this, escaping the corruption of this world. If, if you're caught in this web and you can't break free, I sat with somebody this last week who just shared with me, God is doing in my, a work in my heart. I'm being experiencing freedom from Internet pornography, and it is glorious. I love this transformation. We want that for everybody in the congregation. So go and start with that blog and read it. Um, By the way, Dave Monk was telling me this morning, we had 10,000 unique uh, visits to that Opiso Discipleship website last month. So uh, there's a great resources there, and, and this blog is one of them. So go there, and it'll help point the way for you. Enter into that, because by drawing near to God, then you will experience the, the power that's being talked about in verse 3, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what we need is to draw near to God in knowledge of him. And then, the, and then what happens, lastly, on that is we become like God in his divine nature. Um, we take on his attributes, and I can't talk about that today. All I can say is come back over the next, we're going to spend three weeks right after Uh, This next weekend, we're going to spend three weeks unpacking what comes next after this, which are some of the most powerful verses in this book. Verse 5 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. It's this chain of virtues that God wants to engender in who we are to change us and transform us. And so we're going to spend three weeks on those verses, unpacking those virtues and how it is that by drawing near to God, His very being will spill out into our lives. So be a part of that. It's going to be great. Lord, we hunger and we thirst for you. Every human being does. We need you and want you. You are all that we want. You are our beloved. Thank you for this link, this scripture that links us to you while you are quote unquote away. We know you are coming back. You've written to us to hold on to your love until you come back, when it'll be evident and obvious to us. And with your help, we want to meet you daily. We want to cherish this writing that you've given to us. Through it, we want to know you more and more and more. We want to grow in anticipation of that day when you return. We want to know what you're like, so we can recognize you when you return. We want to partake of your glory and and your excellence. We want to bask in it, and we want it to become part of who we are. And it's only your divine power that can achieve all this, so we bring ourselves to you for you to do that work. In Christ's name, amen.